That was great. Let's let's pray. Father, I don't think I could say it better, so I'll just uh, say again what we we just sang. Our prayer this morning is that you would speak, O Lord, as we come to you, to receive the food of your holy word, take your truth and plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness, that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and renew our minds. Help us grasp the heights of your plans for us. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Father, it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Good Good to see everyone today. Like I said last week, we're going to wrap up our study in Acts this morning. We'll be in Acts chapter 28 if you want to start heading there in your Bibles. I read a story this week about a well-known rabbi named Itzhak Kaduri, who died in 2006 in Jerusalem at the age of 103 or 105. There's some debate of when his birth year was, but he was old. And to give you an idea of how widely he was followed, the estimates of how many people attended his funeral in Jerusalem range between two and 500,000 people came to his funeral in Jerusalem. But the more interesting thing about Rabbi Kaduri is that before he died, he claimed to have figured out who the Messiah was because the Messiah had appeared to him in a vision. But he wouldn't tell anyone, and I think I know why, but he wouldn't tell anyone. He wrote it down on a piece of paper and he gave it to some of his closer disciples and told them not to open it until after he had died. And so in April of 2007, about a year later, they opened up this letter that Rabbi Kaduri had had written and in it, he wrote that the Messiah was Yahashua. We know him by his Greek name of Jesus. Now, this sent shockwaves through Jerusalem and the entire world that a rabbi this well-known would say that Jesus was the Messiah. The legitimacy of that letter is actually still debated today. A lot of people want to say that his disciples forged it, but it's an interesting story if you want to look it up sometime. But Rabbi Kaduri wasn't the first rabbi to send shockwaves through the world about what he believed. There was another rabbi who shocked the world with his proclamation that Jesus was the Messiah long before Rabbi Kaduri. His name was Saul. We know him better by his Greek name, Paul. And for the last 19 chapters or so of Acts, we've been reading about his life. But, as we've read Luke's account of Paul's journeys, we keep bumping up against a question. Luke provides all this detail. He's a historian, and he gives us everything and more that we've ever wanted to ever know. And we keep bumping up against this question. Why does Luke include all of this seemingly unnecessary information about Paul? Luke keeps telling us these stories about Paul and he includes all these, all this information about where he was and where he's going and where they stopped in between and all the people that he met and the size of the boat and how many fish and blah, 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 blah. And rarely, if ever, does Luke say, this is what that means. So we find ourselves asking, what's the point? 
We bumped into this question last week when we saw the story of, of Paul's shipwreck. And we heard everything. We learned more than we ever wanted to know about sailing and, 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 and geography. And our Greek, mi- our Greek minds keep wanting to say, that's great, Luke, but get to the point. Well, we're going to bump into that question again this morning as we look at Paul's final leg of his uh, journey to Rome. So we're going to handle this text very much the same way we did last week. We're going to walk through it and, and, and look at it and get it under our, uh, get, get our arms wrapped around it. And then we're going to try to answer the question, what does it mean? And then lastly, we'll see if there's anything in it for us. So if you made your way there yet, let's jump into Acts chapter 28, beginning in verse 1. Luke writes this. After we were brought safely through, remember they had just you know, been shipwrecked. He says, we learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. So keep in mind, it's late October. They've just been hammered by a storm for two or three weeks. They've had to swim who knows how far to get from this ship to to the shore through the ocean, and now it's raining. So they're freezing. He says in verse 3, When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, though he has escaped from the sea. Justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now, for you visitors, I've been waiting a long time for this passage because we finally get to bring out the snakes. Just kidding. I know I might come across as gruff or quiet or whatever, but I can tell you if uh, I'll scream like a little girl and sacrifice any one of you to get away from a snake. (laughs) No, no, I won't think twice about it at all. If I was in this story, it would just say a snake fastened onto his hand, Grant passed out at the end. That's it. I'd like to think I have a deeper connection with the Garden of Eden, and and that makes me more spiritual, but the Bible says I shouldn't lie. So, Verse 17, or 7, excuse me. It says, now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief of the man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when, he, when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were, were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed." After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria. So if you remember, it's another grain ship coming from the breadbasket of Rome. He says, with the twin gods as a figurehead, that would be the two, two sons of Zeus, or the son and the daughter, excuse me, putting in at Syracuse, not New York. They didn't take the long way. That's Syracuse in, in Italy. We stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came all the way to Patioli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Epius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage, 
and when he came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Now, these soldiers worked in four-hour shifts, and, and when Luke says that Paul was guarded by a soldier, that's Roman lingo for he was chained to a soldier 24-7. So it's kind of like, think like a ball and chain, except for this ball is a trained killer and has strict orders to execute you if you try to run away. Even, even so, though, I think we, because we know Paul like we do, I think we still have to ask who was chained to who is a, is a good question. The larger point, though, is, if you've been following along in our study of Acts, is that when we read this verse, we're supposed to take this huge sigh of relief because Paul finally made it to Rome. He finally got there. The book of Acts has been about a lot of things, but almost the entire last third of it has been about Paul's travel to Rome. And that leads us straight back to our question, why did it take so long? Why do we need to know about campfires and snakes and guys named Publius? If you've read ahead, or, or even if you haven't, you'll, you'll, you'll see that Paul's going to have a conversation with the Jews when he gets to Rome, and it's not difficult to figure out that the emphasis of this passage is, is in that conversation that he had in Rome. However, that, it begs the question, what's the point of the rest of this stuff? Why doesn't Luke just say, and some other stuff happened and Paul got to Rome? Here's what he said. We have all this extra information. I, I saw this thing the other day. It was really interesting. It's called How It Should Have Ended. I don't know if you've ever seen these. It's a little cartoon that somebody makes where they take movies and then they tell you how it should have ended. We, I feel like we want to do a How It Should Have Ended for, for Paul's little journey. Like, like there's one about the Lord of the Rings, if you've ever seen that one, where at the beginning is the same. Gandalf gives the ring to Frodo and, and tells Frodo he's got to go you know, destroy this ring in Mount Doom. But then instead of everything else, they get on the back of an eagle, fly over Mount Doom. Frodo drops the ring into the volcano. Cut, end of scenes, we save like a billion dollars on production. We want to do something kind of like that here with Paul. Like Paul's how it should have ended is like he packs a sack lunch, he flags down a camel cab, goes all the way to Rome, bing, bang, boom, he's there. That's, that's, that's how we want it, but that's not how it happened. So why does Luke include all this information that doesn't seem to contribute much of anything? The answer is profoundly simple. Luke includes all this information because in between the lines of it, it's illuminating something extremely important. What Luke is, is showing us, what, he, what we're seeing is, is in intricate detail, the sovereign will of God in the life of Paul. Paul said he wanted to go to Rome. God promised he would get him there, but God was mum on how he would get him there. And to that end, God sovereignly worked in the life of Paul in dozens of different ways to get him to Rome. He used friends and he used enemies. He used sailors. He used soldiers. He used agreement and disagreement. He used arguing and, and riots and welcoming parties. He used all sorts of different circumstances to get Paul to Rome. God even sovereignly ordained that Paul's own hands and feet would swim him a little bit of the way to Rome. And this path that God ordained for Paul, it was full of joy and sorrow and pleasure and pain and success and failure. It was full of all this different stuff. 
So, so the profoundly simple answer to why Luke included all this information is because it shows in extreme detail the path that God sovereignly designed for Paul to travel. Listen, we still need to investigate the reason why we question all of this extra information. The reason we want it to just get to the end. We still have to ask that question. Why do we feel that way? Because that, that exposes something in us. It exposes something in us that is so deep, it's, it's, it's so baked into our DNA that we don't even recognize it exists. But what I want you to understand is if we could see why we think this info is so unnecessary, if we, could, if we could understand why we think all of this is not needed, it would radically change the lives of every person in this room. See, I'm going to guess that, that most of you didn't plan your life to be what it is now. This wasn't on your vision board, wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Maybe you had a plan when you were, maybe you're like me when you were young and you were too dense to have a plan. But either way, I'm willing to bet that in some way or another, every single person in here is somewhere that they didn't plan on being. I didn't think I'd have that many kids. I didn't think my kids would turn out like that. I didn't think I'd have this job. I didn't think I'd still have this job. Maybe you swore that you'd never marry a pastor. You know, in fact, there's one thing I know about a lot of you. I know a lot of you never thought you'd end up in Albuquerque. You, you landed here and it was sort of by accident. There's a reason we call this place the land of entrapment is, <laughs> is it snags people. But those kind of thoughts, they're like a combo meal. They, they come with something else. When our plans don't end up what they should be, that comes with stuff like I didn't think I'd have this much regret. I didn't plan on having this anxiety, this, this pain and failure and sadness. That wasn't part of my plan. I didn't plan on feeling this lost. I thought I'd be happier and more successful and more fulfilled. Whether you had all these great plans or you didn't have any plans at all, I know most of you would say that you didn't plan on being where you are now. And, and, and I guess at this point you're asking, well, what does that have to do with all this stuff that Luke is writing? Well, you see, we can run through all of these riots and prisons and all this information, abandonment by friends and shipwrecks and snake bites. And with the hindsight we have, we can see God's providence in Paul's life. But when it happens to us, we feel like something's wrong. When what we're reading that sounds insignificant happens to us, we feel like something's off track, like we've missed something important. When our life bounces around the map, we feel like we did something wrong and we'll squirm and we'll fight and struggle to get our plans back on track. But listen, Paul didn't know what was going on either. Just like we didn't or don't. None of this was on Paul's vision board when he was just a little pup in, you know, rabbi school. But hear me on this. Even though we feel like our lives might be off track, like something is wrong, like, like it's not going the way that I wanted it to, there's something off. Even though we feel that way, this is never the case. Ever. Do you wonder why you're here this morning? 
Because the answer is the same as it, it was, as it was for Paul. You are where you are because God sovereignly ordained you to be there. You cannot be somewhere God doesn't want you to be. I'll let you know a little secret. You're not powerful enough. You are where you are because God sovereignly ordained you to be there. The job you have, the house you live in, the kids you have, even being here in this room this morning because God sovereignly ordained you to be here. And even without moving forward in the text, that should bring us great peace. In the words of R.C. Sproul, he said, There is not a single molecule in the universe that is outside of God's control. We're made up of molecules. All the U-turns and the shipwrecks and the snake bites of our lives are not some cosmic accident. They are the carefully orchestrated sovereign plan of a good God. And that's what Luke is recording. He's giving us the intimate detail of God's sovereign plan for Paul's life. In fact, if our lives were recorded in the book of Acts, they would read very much the same as Paul's. There'd be a bunch of information we thought was unnecessary. So let me just be really plain. We see the information that Luke is recording about Paul as unnecessary because deep down we think the circumstances of our lives happen by chance. All this stuff that happened has just happened, so why do we need to know about it? No, you're seeing the finger work the, of God, the, the little details. But because we think that, that, the, that what happens in our lives happens by chance, that, that's why when some, something doesn't go the way we planned, we see it as some accident, as something's gone wrong. But none of it is. None of it is an accident. What Luke is recording about Paul is the same thing that happens to us every day that we fret over. It's the sovereign plan of God in our lives. So like I said, seeing that detail is unnecessary. It exposes something in us that's important for us to lay hold of. It exposes that we don't understand how deeply involved our sovereign God is in our lives. Why? Because it's my life. I'm going to do with it what I want to do. God's not going to sovereignly ordain where I go and what I do. It does. It exposes how deeply involved our sovereign God is in our lives. And we don't understand his purpose and his calling for our lives. It exposes that we think our lives are the outcome of our work, a combination of our work and chance. So questioning the detail in Paul's life, it comes from the same place as wondering why our lives are the way they are. Because what's plant, planted so deeply inside of us is it's this. It's the idea that our plans determine success or failure. Our plans determine happiness or sadness. Our plans determine whether we feel peace or conflict. When our plans go unfulfilled, when our plans for success and peace and achievement and fulfillment go unfulfilled, when God sovereignly ordains shipwrecks and snake bites and, and, and islands, we think something must be wrong because that wasn't on our vision board. But listen to me. 
God is saying to you right now, through the seemingly unnecessary information Luke records about Paul, that you are right where I want you to be. Well, that's awesome, Pastor Grant. God has me where he wants me, so what? Now that you've taken everything I had planned and thrown it in the circular file, so what? Because unless you can tell me why I'm here, that doesn't make things any better. Let's keep going. Verse 17. After three days, he called, this is Paul, after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Now, that's what every pastor loves to hear. We don't have anything against you, but... We'd love to come back tomorrow and think what you, hear what you think about this Christian garbage. Verse 23. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So why does God have you where you are? Why are you where he has sovereignly ordained you to be? Well, I can promise you that, that God never sovereignly ordains a holding pattern for, everyone, for anyone. He, he never sticks someone in a place to just chill because the other place isn't ready yet. And he certainly does not put someone in the wrong place ever. God never is like, oh yeah, sorry about that. Let me see if I can move some things around and get you out of there. He never does that. But that's how we feel. Like for some reason, God's got us in the wrong spot. But the answer of what we're, why God sovereignly puts us where we should be, it's found in our text. And it's two things. Look back at verse 20. Paul says, For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. That's one of them. And the second one is at the end of verse 23. They came and from morning till evening expounded them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. God has put you where you are for two reasons. First, wherever that is, wherever he's put you, there are people around you who need to hear about Jesus. And second, he put you in places where he can grow you. That's God's sovereign plan for your life. That's the overriding principle and priority of everything that you do. In other words, God has sovereignly placed you where you are because according to his plans, there are people around you who need to hear about Christ and he's put you where you are because there are people around you who can teach you about Christ. And listen to me, here's the amazing thing. That means that it never matters where you are. It's never a mistake. 
if there's someone you can tell about Christ and if there's someone to teach you about Christ, it doesn't matter where you are. It's not a mistake. But that's how we think it is, isn't it? In different ways, we all live our lives basically saying, this will make me happy, so that's what I'm going to pursue. And I hope when I get there, God's there. And then when we're surprised when he isn't. So why did Paul's life go the way it did? Was it for the sailors and the people on Malta and the people named Publius and the people in Publius's houses and, and, and jailers and all kinds of other people? Was it for them? Absolutely it was. And it was also for Paul. God ordained Paul's path to tell others about Christ and for Paul to learn about Christ himself. And I, let me expand on those for a second. The first reason God ordained all these events that Luke so intricately records was because wherever Paul went, there were people who needed to hear the gospel. That's a more obvious one. We know Paul. He couldn't keep his mouth shut. He's, if you remember the story, he gets beaten half. They think he's dead, actually. They chuck him in the ditch where they keep all the dead people. And, and then his followers are standing around there, like poking him with a stick to see if he's still dead. And he comes to, and he wants to go back and talk to the same people. The reason God ordained this crazy route for Paul wasn't because God let the details work themselves out and this is just what it happened to be. It wasn't because of chance. It was because there were people everywhere Paul went who needed to hear about Christ. And that's what Paul did. The crowd in Jerusalem, Christ. In front of the Sanhedrin, Christ. In front of the Tribune and Felix and Drusilla and, and, and Agrippa and Festus, Christ. In front of the jailers and the sailors and the Jews in Rome, Christ. Up and all the way ultimately in front of Nero himself, Christ. You couldn't talk to Paul. If you were a soldier chained to this guy, you knew about Christ. Listen, if you want to find success, if you want to, to, to feel peace and fulfillment in your life, if you want to feel like your life is worth something, grab hold of this one truth. We are not engineers or contractors or, or teachers or mothers or, or salespersons who have a message if time and circumstance allow. That is not who we are. We are messengers who God has sovereignly ordained to share that message as engineers and contractors and teachers and salespersons. Listen, not even your being here this morning is some cosmic accident. It's not what happens. You are here because God wanted you to learn something about him. You're here this morning because God wanted you to learn that he has sovereignly ordained wherever you are and whatever you do to be the amphitheater for this message of hope that you have received from Jesus Christ. That's the point. If you want to feel success, if you want to feel fulfillment, chase that. The simple truth that will change your life forever is this. God's sovereign plan for your life has nothing to do with bigger houses. It has nothing to do with a better job. And it has nothing to do with finding better friends. God's sovereign plan for your life is to proclaim the gospel, period. And wherever you are is where he's placed you to fulfill that purpose. What I want you to hear me say, Cedar Springs Church, is when we can lay hold of that simple truth, that simple purpose, it will cause so many of the feelings of failure and anxiety and pain and strife that we feel. 
It'll cause so many of those to turn into feelings of success and achievement and hope and fulfillment. Even if the people don't listen. Even if we do this and they keep rejecting us. Because look at what happens in verse 24. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among, the, among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit, he said, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers <clears throat> through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears, they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed. Lest they, should, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Now, I have to wonder at this point if, if one of Paul's companions kind of standing in the back that kind of knew how this speech went. Did they ever get to the point where they're like, mm -mm -mm, when they hear Paul saying like, the prophet, the prophet was right when he said in Isaiah, and they're like, somebody cut the mic. This is going to go bad. Like, it's, Paul's basically saying, okay, here's what I want you to do. We need each of you line up so that as I walk out of the room, I can poke you in the eye. It's pretty harsh. But again, we, we need to understand what the full work of the gospel is that we proclaim. So let me really simplify what Paul is saying here for you out of Isaiah. What Paul is quoting from Isaiah is basically saying this. God's purpose for our proclamation of the gospel is not always to save. It is also to judge. Our proclamation of the gospel, the, the, the places that God has sovereignly ordained you to be in order to proclaim the gospel, is not always to save. It is also to judge. Yes, there will be those who, who hear the message and believe and praise God. And just like with Paul, there will be those who will not believe. That's what happened in verse 24. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. God's charge to us is simply to proclaim the gospel wherever he's placed us. And sometimes he has ordained us to proclaim the gospel specifically so that someone will hear it and reject it. That they'll see it and, and they'll remain unperceptive. That they'll feel it and their hearts will just be further hardened. And some of you know how incredibly painful that can be if, that, if those the gospel judges are people close to you. That doesn't mean that there's not any encouragement there for us. What this also means is that if someone rejects you, you haven't failed. This means that if someone rejects you, it wasn't because you didn't do it right or didn't say it right or didn't mean it enough. It means that if someone rejects you, God sovereignly ordained for you to proclaim the gospel to them so that they could reject it. We are simply called to obedience, not to results. So that's the first reason God has sovereignly ordained every ounce of your life. Every place you are, wherever you are, whatever your circumstances is, is because we have something to say about the kingdom of God and, to, and about Jesus to those around us. Now, second, God has sovereignly ordained the path of your life so that you can learn more about the hope you have in Christ. This hope that Paul talked about, that wasn't something he just picked up. 
It's something he learned. Again, we all know that the, that the plan of God that he has ordained for each of us, it includes wilderness places. It includes places that aren't fun. They're not pleasant. They're not fulfilling. And so we cry out, something must be wrong. I mean, the greatest evangelist who ever lived is going to spend the last three or four years of his life in jail. Yet he told the Philippians at the beginning of his letter to the Philippians, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's saying, brothers, I want you to know that this whole jail thing, it's really turned out to be a huge success. How could he say that? Well, it's because God has sovereignly placed Paul in circumstances where he could learn what defined success. And when he learned that, where he was became far less important. Success wasn't based on where he was. In other words, it means that the hard places and the painful places are not only not a mistake, the hard and painful places that God sovereignly ordains us to be, it means that they are most are often the most important stops on God's sovereign path for your life. Paul told the Corinthians in, in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 4, beginning in verse 7, he says, but we have this treasure. He's talking about the gospel. It's in jars of clay, meaning they're very fragile. And we have that treasure in these fragile jars so that the surpassing power of, uh, belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body, uh, in the, body the death of Christ, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. In fact, while he was in this prison that we're reading about, he wrote to the Philippians about their concern for providing him. He said this, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that you have revived your concern for me. Thank you. Now listen, not that I am speaking of being in need. Why? For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in every and every circumstance. That's, that's in, every, in, in any and every place God has put me, right? What did he do? I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What's that secret? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul learned that on ships that were going to sink and in jails where he might die. And while people were whipping him, he learned that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. So when Paul, so, so when did Paul best display to those that God had, had sovereignly placed him in, when did he best display the life of Jesus? When he was being given over to death. And, and how did Paul learn about the strength and hope he had in Christ that he so passionately proclaimed to all those people around him? By being in places and situations that he wasn't strong enough to handle. That's how he learned it. And how did he get to those places? God sovereignly planned for him to be there. Guess what, brothers and sisters in Christ? 
The same is true for you and me. In fact, I, I hate to do this, but I need to. I'm going to ruin something for you, okay? There's a verse that says, He will not tempt you beyond what you can handle, right? Now, we've changed that into this idea that He won't give you more than you can handle. That's wrong. God will always give you more than you can handle. That's the whole point. Because what God wants us to learn in order to better proclaim to those around us, He wants us to learn that there is nothing we can't handle when we're in Christ. Not because of ourselves. Check yourself the next time you're like, well, He's not going to give me more than I can handle. Yeah, He is. He's going to pile it on so that you will crack and say, God, please. You know, you're going to think I'm crazy. I'm going to keep going. You know, one of the hallmarks of this church is, you know what one of the hallmarks of this church is? You guys are going to hate me. One of the hallmarks of this church is how many people's lives fall apart when they start coming here. Wow, Grant, you should write a book about church growth. (laughs) Maybe put that on the top of the website, right? Come to our church, your life will fall apart. But I don't see that as a bad thing. I see that as a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful evidence of God's love and grace toward us. And, it, and it's a powerful testimony of, of how powerfully His Word is, is at work in, in this body. How beautiful is it that so many idols have been ripped out of our hands as the Word of God has spoken to us? How, how beautiful is it that so many of us have learned how worthless our treasures here on earth are compared to Christ? How, how, I think it's a magnificent display of, of, of God's grace that He has shown so many of us how firm the rock we're standing on is because a part of our lives has crumbled around us. It, it, it's when God sovereignly ordains that our lives be shaken that He teaches us the most about the kingdom we have come to that cannot be shaken. God ordains events that expose our weakness to teach us the most about the strength we have in Christ. He ordains, it's the most painful events, let me put it that way, the most painful events that God ordains to teach us the most about the hope we have in Christ. It's the most uncomfortable events and circumstances that He ordains for us to to, to give us the best opportunity to proclaim Christ. Again, why was Paul so excited to talk to these Jews? To share the hope that he has. A hope that had been incubated and grown in him through the difficult circumstances that God had ordained sovereignly. So Paul, let me get this straight. You, you, you just almost died at sea. You've been in jail for going on three years and you're on trial for your life. And you want to tell us about your hope? And Paul says, exactly, I'm glad you're paying attention. So if we go back, if we just rewind a little bit, look what happens. Now all of this seemingly useless information is really Luke recording for us in detail the sovereign plan God had for Paul to proclaim the gospel and to learn about him. It's what it is. And it is when we begin to see this truth, when we begin to see the sovereignty, the sovereignty of God's plan for the lives of people like Paul, that this information that Luke writes, it, it no longer seems unnecessary. Now it's beautiful. 
Look, look at how intricately and perfectly God has designed the path he had for Paul. Look how lovingly he placed Paul in different situations to grow his confidence and hope as Paul experienced God's mercy and power. Now, all of this information that Luke gives us, now it becomes like threads in this magnificent tapestry of grace that God has woven for Paul. And listen to me, the tapestry that he has and is weaving for you has no less grandeur. The tapestry that he is weaving in your life through your circumstances that he sovereignly ordains, the good ones and the bad ones, the painful ones and the, and the fun ones, the, the sad ones and the happy ones, the, the tapestry that he is weaving in your life, those little circumstances, those little threads, is no less magnificent and it's no less unique than that of Paul's. Brothers and sisters, if we could learn anything from the book of Acts, it's this. God has sovereignly orchestrated our lives for, increase of his, for increasing His Word, both in those around us and in our hearts. He is sovereignly orchestrating your life to shine the gospel further into your heart and further into the darkness of this world. That's why you are where you are. My prayer for each and every one of us is that we could no longer see the, the difficult events in our lives as mistakes or failures or, or, or unfulfillment, but as the masterpieces they are that God is weaving together for each and every one of us to learn about the hope we have in Christ and then to proclaim that hope of the, of the, of the gospel to others. So let me just wrap things up with this little piece. The book of Acts began with a group of, of frightened unprepared, weak disciples sitting in a room waiting for the Holy Spirit. But look how it ends. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. We are still called to speak of the kingdom of God and about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness because the word of God is still unhindered. Whether in front of emperors or in prisons or at the office or at the kitchen table. It's God's sovereign plan for our lives. Lives, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for speaking to us. I thank you for showing us your glory. Father, my first prayer is that you would humble us. That you would do what needs to be done in our hearts. That we would uh, let go of the grip we have on our lives. That we would look to you and see you as the sovereign orchestrator of everything that's taking place, Father. And that rather than fighting against your plans, we would begin to work with you in them. Pray, Lord, that you'd open our eyes to the people around us who you've sovereignly ordained us to, to be around, to speak the gospel to them. I, I pray, Lord, that you would change our hearts from fear and anxiety of the situations that are difficult into hearts that want to grow and look to you for comfort and strength. What a blessed gift it is, Lord, that 
that you work in our lives for our good. You've promised us this. And it's to that promise we, we hold on to. And that promise is ours because of the Savior Jesus Christ. And so it is in his name that I pray. Amen.